Thanks, Benjamin. Thank you, worship team. Good morning, everyone. I'm sorry I wasn't here at the beginning. I was filling in for Pastor John as he's teaching a um, leadership development for our small group leaders. But I'll again welcome our new members. And those of you that are visiting with us, we're glad you're here. We study right from the Bible here at Bible Fellowship Church. So at this time, our ushers, or not all ushers, just some of our folks are coming to pass out Bibles. If you came this morning and you don't have a Bible or you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand. You're welcome to keep this Bible as well. You, you certainly don't need to return it. We want you to read the Bible, and we believe it's God's words, and so it affects the way we believe and the way we behave. And we usually study verse by verse through books of the Bible. We're going to start a study this summer on the book of Amos, but right now we're doing a short series on some of the controversial issues, which we call some of the major uh, Christian distinctive, the doctrines of the faith. So we talked about the Trinity. Last week, we talked about the question of what happens when we die. This morning, we want to discuss this question. Who do you think you are? Now, normally when that question's asked, who do you think you are? It has sort of a, a negative connotation. It's reactionary. But I want to take out any of the connotations and just stop for a moment and ask that question. Who do you think you are? Now, lest any of you say, well, I don't really have an opinion on that. We all have an opinion on that. We all think about ourselves, and we think about ourselves often. The question is, what are we thinking when we're thinking about ourselves? How do we view ourselves? And one of the things that we learn from the Bible is that the way that most people view themselves is very different from the way that God views them. This is because our minds have been distorted by sin, and we live in a world that has a cultural and opposition to God. And so as a result of that, many of us think very poor thoughts, inconsistent and untrue things about ourselves, and that causes us frequent problems. What you think about yourself is going to affect how you behave. In fact, the book of Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So this morning we want to answer a question, and that is, what does the Bible teach about being human? In other words, what does it what does it mean to be a human being, to be, to be part of the, the human race? What makes us distinct from animals and so forth? And we want to begin with a, a, an interesting psalm. In Psalm chapter 8, remember David, who loved the Lord, a man after God's own heart, frequently wrote these songs of praise to God. And David was a shepherd. He was later known as the sweet psalmist of Israel. But under the leading of the Holy Spirit, David wrote down songs that became part of the Bible, and we call them the Psalms. And so I can imagine that frequently on those evenings as David was out on the hillside as a shepherd, he would look up at the stars, and he knew some of the written texts of Scripture, like the, the Law of Moses, and he had read about creation in the book of Genesis and how God put the sun and moon in place. But once he decided to write a song about that. And so in Psalm chapter 8, David wrote these words. You picture him looking at these vast stars and the moon. He says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers. Wow, God, you're so awesome that you can make the heavens with your fingers. When I look at the moon and the stars which you ordained, he says, what is man that, that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. In other words... As he thinks about God's grand significance, he's caused to ask, who are we so insignificant? Why would you even notice us? Why would you care about us? Why would you create us, O oh God? 
we're so tiny in a vast universe. But yet notice that knowing the book of Genesis that God said, I'm making man in my image and I'm going to put him here on earth to rule, David thought about that and he said, yet, fascinating God, that you have made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty and you make him to rule over the works of your hands. Now, some people think they are God. That's a problem. But it isn't a problem to realize that we've been put here by God in his image to rule over the work of his hands. What does that mean? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Father, may the Holy Spirit help us to grow and learn as we study from the Bible. And you promise that your word is powerful to change our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God. I pray for those who may be very new to studying the Bible, that they will receive what you have for them. And those of us who are believers and who are saved by your grace, may you teach us to grow in an understanding of your greatness and who we are in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to begin this morning, we want to go back to the beginning of Scripture and, and, and start with this premise. The Bible tells us that we're made in the image of God. Uh, that's not something like, oh, I never heard that before, but let, let's talk about that. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? You're reading Genesis chapter 1, and for five straight days, God is bringing things into existence. But on the sixth day, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule. And then down to verse 27, God created man in his image, male and female, he created them. I want to talk about a number of these phrases in here. Number one, when he says, let us make, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, that we, we need to recognize that we are creatures, that we are created by God. We, we did not simply happenstance into existence by some um, mysterious, spontaneous combustion. And as a result of being made, we're dependent creatures. But I want you to notice something really interesting. God never said, let us, when he created anything else. But when it came to humanity, it was as though he turned to himself, the Father, Son, and Spirit, had this divine counsel. John Murray, famous theologian, said this. He called it the unique engagement of divine counsel, which shows that something unique is about to take place. Then God said, let there be. Then God said, let there be. But hold up. This time God had a unique divine counsel, let us, showing the dignity of man. But then he said, let us make them in our image and according to our likeness. Now, I think that those two phrases, image and likeness, are pretty synonymous. I don't think too much should be made of that. But, but I want you to think about this. Why do we have images? What's the purpose of a statue? Well, there's a couple things. Number one, it represents... Right? It, it, it reminds, but it also reflects certain things about the person that it represents. So here God creates this vast universe, but he decides that he's going to place upon this planet a special dignity of having little representations of himself created in his image and his likeness. So, so that gives us a great dignity, a great difference between anything else in creation. But the question is, what does that mean to be made in God's image? 
Theologians are always debating this and constantly coming up with different views of what does it mean to be made in God's image? Some things even bizarre, like Karl Barth felt that the, the only representation of God's image is that we're male and female. But I want to suggest that there's a lot of things implied by that that we need to think about and view ourselves that way. First of all, to be made in God's image involves ethical qualities that mirror God's qualities. So when he first created mankind on planet Earth, there were some things within us that were supposed to image and represent him, certain qualities, okay? And the reason that we know this to be true is that when Adam and Eve sinned, those qualities were deeply marred, okay? So once Adam and Eve sinned, people became very twisted from the original image. We haven't lost the image. Every person, no matter how wicked or twisted they are, they still in some way reflect the image of God, but usually quite poorly. But, but an illustration of this is if I see a, a terrible car wreck and I see a twisted wreck of metal, maybe even melted and burned, I can still tell it's a car because I could see a tire or a cracked windshield. In the same way, as we look at humanity, we see a lot of bad things, but somehow we still see some of these ethical qualities that, of doing good or helping others or being merciful. So the Bible teaches as we become Christians that that's part of what it means to be renewed in Christ is that God is making us back into what we were originally supposed to do, and that is to reflect his ethical qualities. So where we might say, well, I'm not angry, I'm just Italian, and we shout and scream and holler, or if we're in trouble, we just lie to one another, right? God says, but now once you're a Christian, you put these things aside like anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. Well, why not? Everybody else does it. Because you're a Christian now. Don't lie to one another since you laid aside the old self. You put on the new self. Now notice, we're being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So, so here we see God said, let's make man in our image. But because it was marred, when we become a Christian, now we're being renewed back to what we were originally designed to represent. So think about that. God created you because he wants you to reflect. He wants me to reflect some of his characteristics. So what, what does that involve? Well, I think a second thing, being made in God's image, involves moral responsibility. In other words, when God created us, he didn't simply put Adam there and say, live independent of me, do whatever you want. Instead, he gave us what theologians call the cultural mandate, that, that God created us in his image to reflect him, but, but we're responsible to worship, to serve, and to subdue and rule over creation under God's rule. Now, that's really cool to think about that. So, so interestingly, as soon as God said, let us make man in our image, immediately said, and let them rule, right? So if anything, I can conclude this, that somehow being made in God's image involves ruling over creation underneath of the great ruler God, okay? So, so what does that look like? In what way have I been placed on this planet to rule over the fish of the sea, over creatures, in fact, God's going to go on and, and give some more things that he wants us to do. Notice, God blessed them and said to them, 
He didn't just say rule. He said be fruitful and multiply. And we're going to learn from chapter 2 that that involves marriage and procreation. Fill the earth. And, and here, I think it's more than just filling the earth with children, but it's replenishing the earth as we cultivate and plant. And then rule over the fish of the sky. So, so notice again, another phrase, subdue it. So God didn't just say, ah, figure out something to do down there. He gave us moral responsibilities. We're accountable. So innocent Adam and Eve in the image of God were created with this capacity to reflect God. But think about all the things that, that, that they were responsible under God to do. They weren't, they weren't given the opportunity to say, you know what, I don't feel like getting married. Let's just live together. And you know what, I, I don't think I want kids. They, they, they're going to hinder you know, my ability to do my thing. So marriage wasn't man's idea, it was God's idea. And, and, and it's not something that we have the freedom to come along in the 21st century and say, we're going to redefine it, or we're going to throw it out the window. It was God's design to create marriage and for children to be brought forth within marriage. It's God's design that we replenish and, and cultivate the earth, that we plant and that we take care of our environment that we subdue and have dominion over nature and creatures. Now, the interesting thing is God didn't say, let him rule over everything. It was only the things that he made after day four that we rule over. So, for example, when he made the waters, he never told us to rule over the waters. And I'll tell you why. We can't. Smart as we are. Go make it rain when we have a drought. Or stop a tidal wave. So we don't have this complete mastery of, of creation. There are certain things that God wants us to subdue and have dominion over. He wants us to labor. He wants us to work. We were created to work. We weren't created to have fun. Work is not a consequence of sin. Before Adam and Eve sinned, God placed them in the garden. And he said, cultivate it. Now, it wasn't terribly difficult work. It wasn't until after Adam and Eve sinned that God said, now I'm going to make you pain and sweat and toil and I'll curse the ground. It's going to be difficult. But they still worked. So think about that. This is why, you know, years ago it was shameful not to work. Now... Girl once said to her 20-year-old brother who was in the basement playing computer games all day long and not working, she said, if you keep this up, you're going to live in mom and dad's basement forever. And he goes, really? You think that'll work out? <laughs> See, but that's not why we were created, and that's not really something that we find fulfillment in. Now, some have suggested that we were created to keep the Sabbath as a cultural mandate, although that's debated. It wasn't commanded till the, the law. But we also were created to respect human life. And we were created to worship. Now, these last two I want to develop for just a moment. We were created to respect human life. And we know this for this reason. That when, when God flooded the earth. And by the way, those of you who don't believe in a worldwide flood. Do some research. There's a lot of evidence that this world was once flooded. There's fish fossils on mountaintops. So, but after God flooded the earth and destroyed people because of their violence... When they got off, God said, we're going to have a redo, but we're going to do something different. Because men are made in my image and they have a unique dignity, 
Therefore, I'm going to institute capital punishment because I don't want you people killing each other. Because when you kill someone, you are desecrating my image. So when God said in verse 5, I will require your lifeblood from every beast and every man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Here's why. For the image of God, he created man. And so that gives dignity to human life. And that's why as Christians... We ought to think through things like abortion. Because these aren't fetuses. These are human children created in the image of God even before they're born. And things like euthanasia where we don't, we don't choose to end someone's life just because we don't agree with the quality of it. But rather we recognize that the most despicable person or the most weak and despondent people that they have dignity because they're made in the image of God. They have worth. But, but I mentioned too that we were created to worship. And this is one of the terrible things that happened when Adam and Eve sinned. Once original sin entered the universe, men began to press the delete button when it came to doing what we're supposed to do. If this world was the way it was supposed to be under God right now, everyone would worship and serve God all day long. That would just be normal, right? But think how few people get out of bed in the morning and say, God, thank you. I bless your name. The scriptures tell us how it all unraveled when men exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for images. But notice, God's going to tell us in verse 25 that, that because of original sin, people today exchange the truth of God for a lie. And one of the greatest lies is that I can live independently of God and I don't have to do what he says. And who is he to intrude on me? And so instead, I'll worship and serve the creature. I'll choose softball over Sabbath. I'll choose the beach over the Bible. I'll choose sex outside of marriage if it pleases me. And so the world has abandoned worshiping and serving God. But this is the beauty of being a Christian. When, when we're redeemed by the blood of Jesus, forgiven and bought back to him and set free, we now have that privilege of learning to do what we were created to do in the beginning, and that is to worship and serve God. So even though it looks ridiculous to be the only one in the restaurant bowing our heads and thanking God for our food, you're not the one that's messed up. You're not the one that's abnormal. We're the ones that represent God's image. I love the song, 10,000 Reasons. The Bible says, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The songwriter said in 10,000 Reasons, the sun comes up. It's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your praise again. We don't think that way. Ah, there goes the alarm. What? Ah, the kids drive me crazy. Just step back and go, wait, I'm made in the image of God, created and saved by his grace to worship him, to serve him, to fulfill the cultural mandate and to take my responsibility seriously. Being made in the image of God also involves this, this, this unique mystery of being male and female. Let's go back to that, that, that passage. Being male and female involves mutual responsibility and mutual dependence. Think about this. When, when, when God made Adam and Eve, it says, 
So he made them male and female. Let us make man in our image. So he made them male and female. What is it about maleness and femaleness that reflects the image of God? So when God created Eve, you'll notice that I said it involves mutual responsibility and mutual dependence. I want to develop those two thoughts. Mutual responsibility. So, so when God first created Adam from the dust of the ground, you're going, you really believe that? We know that we came from... No, we don't know that. And I would encourage you, even this morning, I talked talk to someone and they said, well, what about those transitional people that weren't really monkeys and weren't really men? And I go, there was no transitional people that weren't really monkeys and weren't really men. That's a lie. That's a theory. There's no evidence of that, even though your textbook had all these pictures that made it so seemingly clear. But when God created Adam from the dust of the ground, he placed him in the garden with a mission of responsibility, cultivate it. And when God said it is not good for man to be alone, it wasn't just his loneliness that God created man and women, male and female, to accomplish. Notice what it says. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. He didn't say, I'll make him a, a friend who he can have coffee with because he's so lonely. While that's wonderful, that's not what it says. He says, I will make him a helper. Well, what does that imply? That implies that Adam already had responsibilities and that Eve was to come alongside of him, not just to stare into his eyes and for them to sing love songs but that together they might fulfill their cultural responsibilities before God. Again, he says, I'll make them a helper suitable, corresponding. There are, there are traits in women that complement and complete men. And God, though he's, he's spoken of in male gender, God is a spirit, so it wouldn't be appropriate to really say God's a man. And so some of the qualities that are within women, God appeals to them. He says, as a nursing mother wouldn't forsake her children, neither would I forsake you. But this word suitable is translated in the King James, meet, M-E-E-T. I'll make him a helper meet for him. That is not a single word. And so people have taken that word and say, this is my help meet. Please, don't say that. It's not a word. I'll make him a helper suitable. And, and, and in case we missed it, the end of verse 20, there was not found a helper suitable. So, so again, I want to reinforce the idea that being male and female involves the idea of men and women having mutual responsibilities. Well, what, what does that look like to have mutual responsibilities? It also involves mutual dependence. See, there's a tendency, I think, among men to go, hey, 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 read this passage. For a man not, ought not to have his head covered since he's the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. So in the New Testament churches, the apostles, as they reflected on the, the creation account, in, in that setting, they, they expected women to have a covering over their head when they met for worship. And this was a display that she was married and that she was in submission to her husband. But some people have read verse 7 when it says, a man is the image and glory of God, but women is the glory of man, and drawn out the conclusion that women don't reflect the image of God, that they only reflect the image of man. 
Well, I don't think that's Paul's point here. He already said in, in Genesis, I'm going to make man in my image, male and female, he made them. So I don't think this is detracting from women's capacity to reflect God's image. Now men are like, keep reading, Brother Allen, for man doesn't originate from woman, but woman from man. Indeed, man wasn't created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And the fellas are going, that'll be enough, Pastor. You can stop right there. Glad the girls are here today. Now don't stop. Because while that's the case, and Paul says, therefore women ought to have a symbol of authority because somehow this, this submission to authority is a reflection of the image of God. And when he says because of the angels, you're going, what in the world does that have to do with when Christians get together? It's a reminder that there's a spiritual realm. Don't forget about that. Don't walk by sight and forget to walk by faith. There's a spirit. Angels are observing our worship. Angels observe Christians. And so do demons. And so does God even as we gather in the presence of Jesus. But notice how Paul, lest men run proudly with this idea, says, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. So let's not forget this sense of mutual dependence. You say, okay, but what exactly does that, does that look like then, to, to be made in the image of God and to be male and female? Well, it involves this idea of being different and distinct. And, and I want to come back to this idea of being under authority, but I want you to think about another thing. When it comes to gender, being made in the image of God means being made male and female. And being male and female is not our choice. It's not ours to choose after we're born. I think I want to be male, or I think I want to be female. It's ordained by God and ingrained in nature. This is important to think about in our culture right now because there's so much discussion about this, that you can choose your gender or you can choose your sexual preference as though this was something that is optional. Now, one of the things that the Bible makes very clear is that mankind, because of original sin, is in rebellion against God. People do not like to be told that God has laws, and if you break them, you're going to be punished. And so, on the one hand, while we, we expect people to rebel against God's laws and say, I don't care what God says, I'm going to have sex before I'm married, or I'm going to be a homosexual, or I'm going to lie, or I don't care what God says. But the danger is there are a lot of people who are trying cleverly to, rather than just reject what God says, they want to twist it so that they can be included in Christianity. The Bible speaks of this in 2 Peter 3. It says, untaught and unstable people twist the scriptures for their own destruction. So, so when it comes to homosexuality or this transgender discussion, you know, I, I would be much more comfortable, even though it's sad if someone said, I don't care what God says, I'm just going to do it my way. But what instead they try to do is they try to twist the scriptures in order to condone their disobedient behavior. And, I, and I'll just give you one example. We read in Genesis chapter 1, male and female made he them. 
So people have twisted that verse to say, see, we're actually all created with both genders. I was born male and female, and then I just get to choose which one I want to act out and live. And now we live in a culture that's not only permitting that, it's encouraging that. But Paul appeals to the very order of creation as he discusses mankind's sexual perversions, their sexual distortions. He says, and, and for the sake of time, man has rejected God, we saw in verse 23. But notice verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. So, so I want you to think about this. On Black Friday, security guards trying to keep Restrain people from mowing them over, right? In the same way as God looks down on this world, he created man in his image, but because of mankind's sinfulness, we're constantly chomping to rebel against God. And one of God's judgments is to remove his restraint and to just give man over to multiply his wickedness. It's a judicial hardening. But he gives an example of this. He says in verse 26, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So what I want you to see here is that God has designed certain things that are nature itself teaches us that some things are anatomically inappropriate. Even the discussion of long hair, Paul says, doesn't nature itself teach us that for a man to have what I would consider extremely long hair is, is, is a shame? And the reason for that is because I might come up behind someone whose hair is down here and say, excuse me, miss, and turn around and go, oh, I didn't realize that was a person. There are certain things that are inherently built into nature. And while we might say, I don't care what God says, or we might try to twist the scriptures, we're not free to choose our gender. And we're not free to choose our sexual preference. Now, I want to say something really important here, and that is this. As the church, we must be extremely sympathetic and compassionate to those who struggle with this. There are many people in society who struggle with gender identity and with same-sex attraction. We have to be compassionate to them. We can't say to them, what's wrong with you, you perv? But at the same time, we can't also say, hey, you know, if that's, if that's what you're attracted to, that's fine. We didn't make the rules. God did. And so if you're attracted to the same sex, that doesn't mean you're some wicked person. What it does mean is that God will enable you by his grace to not act that out. Any more than a person with anger. Imagine if we said, well, you know, he was born with propensities to murder he can't help it no you can have these feelings but God gives us the spirit and changes our hearts so that we don't have to live out those but what we want to do is offer a hospital of compassion to those who struggle with trans transgender issues and 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 same-sex attraction and say listen we're all sinners right I, I'm attracted to other women beside my wife because I'm a sinner and that doesn't justify me saying well therefore I can practice that but we hold forth the hope of the gospel that Jesus forgives us if you've practiced any of these things. 
He can forgive you and he can give you strength and a new life. Somebody say amen to that. We're no better than people that struggle with these issues. And so let's continue to pray, but also not compromise in a culture that says, if you say anything about it other than what we believe, you're hateful. So, God also says being made in his image involves not only being male and female with the responsibilities and and the, the lack of choice in gender, but finally, it involves imaging God while being under authority. And, and this is where it gets difficult. There are several places in the Bible where God tells women to submit to their husbands. One is in marriage and the other one is in the church. And I can understand, as a woman, I, I would find that a little bit grating. I would find that a little bit difficult. Why? Why? Why can't I teach or exercise authority over men in the church? Why does the Bible say that? What, are men better than me? Why do I have to submit to my husband? But what I want you to think about is that we're all called to image God. We're all called to reflect him to this world. And that being under authority is one of the many ways that we can image God. All of us are under authority. So if I want to drive 90 miles an hour and the policeman pulls me over, I can't say to him, you're no better than me. I don't have to listen to you. But rather, I can reflect God's image by by genuinely showing a sense of submission to authority over me. So John Frame said this in his systematic theology, far from being in a place of subordination, or being in a place of subordination under someone else does not detract from displaying God's image. So, so ladies, when, when God says in the Bible, wives, be subject to your husbands, and he then says, husbands, love your wives, he says this, being willing to subordinate yourself to someone else for God's sake is a component of the image of God, not a compromise. It's by submitting to others, Frame says, that often we can best display the ethical aspects of God's image. I want you to think about this. When Jesus was on earth, as he submitted to God, as he submitted to those people who put him on the cross when he could have easily destroyed them, he was showing love and long-suffering. So, so ladies, as, as you submit to your husbands, it doesn't mean he's better than you. It doesn't mean he earned this. But rather, it's your opportunity to reflect God's image. As Frame says, how better to demonstrate God's love than by long-suffering, gentleness, self-control, and submitting to others. Well, being made in God's image also involves having an outer and an inner man. So when God created us, remember, he formed us from the dust of the ground, and scientists basically say that we're just a bunch of dirt, Right? Eventually, when they put us back in the ground, we decompose back into the dust, just like God said would happen. But we need to remember, and if you weren't here last week, remember we talked about the issue of what happens when we die. And, and we said that the Bible teaches we have an inner man. We have an outer man and we have an inner man. And the Bible says our outer man's perishing, but our inner man is being renewed day by day. And this is one of the fundamental problems with people on this earth is we, we spend all of our time worrying about our outer man, our pleasures, our wants, our desires, our fulfillments physically. And we forget that we have a soul. And so Jesus says, man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so 
this inner man of ours is composed of a soul and a spirit. And, and, and uh, I think where, where there's a danger is people take this idea of soul and spirit and they want to really figure out the difference. I want to suggest that the Bible teaches that those two words, though our soul and spirit is different, they're often used synonymously. So when you begin to study philosophy and psychology, you'll find that there's all different views of the soul is the, is the seat of the emotions, the, the psyche, and, and then the, the spirit has this and that. That, to me, begins to go into the realm of speculation. The Bible does not go that far. In fact, it uses soul and spirit synonymously. So Paul prays, he says, may God sanctify your spirit, soul, and body without blame at the coming of Jesus. If you're a Christian, he wants you to become more and more like him. So you go, see, there is a difference. And I go, yeah, but he doesn't tell us what the difference is. So just consider that you have an inner man. So look how the, the Bible uses soul and spirit synonymously. Jesus often spoke of man's souls. He spoke of a, of a man who had a bunch of stuff. He was a rich man. He didn't care about God. And that might be you this morning. All you're worried about is your stocks. And you think you got a long life ahead to retire at 50 and do your thing. And this man said, soul, I have many goods laid up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said, you fool, this very night, what's required? Your soul. And you can mark this down. Unless Jesus comes back, your soul will one day be required of you. But the Bible also calls it our spirit. The body without the spirit is dead. So, so my point is, don't make too big of a deal between your soul and spirit. But do note this, that you and I better think about what's on the inside because if your values and priorities are all in this life, you're going to be sorely disappointed when you die. You've made a bad exchange. Jesus says, what good is it if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? So, so many times when I plead with people to follow Jesus, and they're like, but well, I don't want to give up that. I don't want to get, what about this? And I'm going, is that worth losing your soul? Is that worth going to hell over? So as I close, I want to mention something that's very much debated in our culture, and it's sad, and that is, can Adam and Eve be reconciled with the theory of evolution? Because frankly, more and more Christians today are denying that Adam was a real person, both in Protestant and Christian realms. Good men like Tremper Longman, who teaches at, at uh, Westminster Seminary, he, he wrote in one of his commentaries, a, a very sad, and, and I, I'll just briefly say this, he says, the description of Adam and Eve's creation is figurative. The question is open whether Adam was an actual person. Perhaps there was a first man, Adam, but maybe Adam is just a figure of humanity in general. I want you to think about that. If Adam and Eve weren't literal, number one, then Jesus and Paul were mixed up. I remember speaking with a Catholic priest who was a professor at Villanova who taught religion. And I asked him, do you think Adam was a real individual? He said, I don't, I don't think so. And I said to him, well, then Jesus must have been confused because Jesus referred to them being made in the beginning. Jesus thought Adam was a real person, and so did Paul. There's this new movement among Christians that men have become so smart with bioethics and genetics that we realize that it's impossible for there to have been two original people. And I'm going, really? Well, then Paul was wrong. And the Bible's wrong when it says the first man, Adam, became a living soul. You say, oh, well, what, does it matter if it's a story? Of course it matters, because think of the implications. If the story of Adam and Eve is only a myth, then is original sin real? Is the condemnation 
that God pronounces on the world genuine. Just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death came through sin. There's a lot at stake there. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the reason people die is because Adam sinned? And even if you don't believe it, I can tell you what the Bible says. One day you're going to die and you're going to be responsible for your sin. And if you think you're going to come before God and say, I'm a good person, you might want to read the Bible again. Because if you're a good person, then Jesus would have never had to die for you. So what difference does this make? You're like, why do we, pastor, why do I need to study about who do I think I am? What difference does it make if I'm made in the image of God? It makes a lot of difference. And so if you're Christian, I want to encourage you to understand and live out your lives as those who are being renewed, right? So, so, so you're not just a piece of junk, you know, and if you think of yourself as ugly or stupid or why did God make me this way? Hey, he designed you in his image, and he has saved you and given me and you the capacity and the privilege of worshiping him every day, serving him, finding out what is it he wants me to do, and living my life for him, not for myself, and then becoming like Jesus. Now, I'll be the first one to say, sheesh, don't always look at me because I'm not reflecting Jesus, but I want to. That's why we're, we advance the gospel, and we want to make disciples. A disciple is a person who's becoming like Jesus. But this doesn't happen by accident. This happens intentionally. Are you committed to becoming like Jesus? I'm going to tell you a fact from the Bible. You cannot do that consistently until you are plugged into a local church. You cannot simply say, I'll just become like Jesus myself, my way. That's why God created the body of Christ. That's why we urge you to get into small groups. And, and have devotions and prayer and discussions with other Christians as we forgive and love and serve and use our gifts. And then we can view humanity and go, instead of going, what's wrong with this stupid world and these politicians who are nuts? We go, wait a minute. The world has gone mad, but there's a, a goal that God has in mind. And we have the opportunity to love our neighbors and the people we work with. And we not only can live out the cultural mandate, but the great commission. God's given us a job to do. Jesus said, all authority is mine in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples. As, as people who've been forgiven every day, the people that you and I work with, our family, our spouses, we have the opportunity of pointing them to Christ and praying for them and, and loving them and serving them and discipling one another until Christ comes back. And that's why it's exciting to see 28 people being brought in here, not because we're doing anything, but God is is working with us. Jesus said, all authority is mine, and I'm with you. Making disciples is something Jesus wants to do, but he's looking for people who will loan him their hands and feet and live their lives for him, and I hope that that's yours. If you're not a Christian, well, it's pretty simple. Realize that you need forgiveness and a new beginning. I am serving you a recall. You have now received a recall from God. Warning, left to yourselves, you're going to implode die and go to hell. But if you come to God's factory, you can be born again. Jesus said this in verse 3, truly I say to you, unless one's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You might not like born again Christians, but I'll tell you this much, they got one thing over you if you're not born again. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How'd you like to have a redo? 
You go, I got a lot of regrets in my past. You're in the right place listening to the word of God. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. This morning, I want to invite you, actually this afternoon, as long as I don't say this evening, then we're going to be here a little long. <laughs> Almost done. I want to invite you to come to Jesus just as you are this morning. If God's speaking to you and you go, you know, I don't get a lot of this stuff, but I, but I get this much. I'm a sinner. I've made a mess of my life. And I want to be forgiven. And I want to give my life over to Christ. Jesus will never turn you down. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I won't cast them out. Right there in your seat, Jesus is offering you free and full forgiveness as a gift. You don't earn it. Come as you are. Jesus paid it all. And those of us who are forgiven, we're still in process. We're still addicts in recovery. We're still growing in grace and becoming like Jesus. But I hope this week you'll go out and you'll realize who you are as a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, that you'll realize God wants you to be a Christian. And if you don't spend eternity with Jesus, you have one person to blame, and that's you. So come to the Lord Jesus while you can. If you have questions about that, we'll be glad to talk to you afterward. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you so much for the Bible. We don't have to grope around trying to figure out why we're here and what our job is. Thank you for marriage. Thank you for men and women. Thank you for being a gracious, loving God who gave us all things freely to enjoy, and to be creative, and to learn how to serve and love others. Father, I pray that as a church we will keep growing in grace, that you will help us to stand against sexual perversions and distortions with love and truth, and that more and more people will find the Lord just like we did, just sinners who have been saved by grace. May your power be unleashed upon our community. May we see many coming to Christ. Perhaps that's you this morning. The best you know how, just tell the Lord Jesus, Jesus, come into my life. I believe in you, and I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I want to be born again this morning. And if you make that decision, be sure to let me know or let someone know. We want to give you a booklet. Thank you, Father, for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.